sermon lesson this morning is going to be taken from Colossians chapter 3. The sermon is going to be based on chapter 3 verses 17 through 21. But before the sermon starts, allow me to read the, the verses leading up to that. We're in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. I also want to invite you not only to open up to that, but also open up your worship guide to the sermon guide that's located therein. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie with each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God to this point. If you want my opinion... Taking a picture isn't that hard. Now, I don't mean to offend those of you who studied photography, who get paid to take pictures, or who just work really, really hard to get that perfect selfie or family photo. But I don't think taking a picture is that hard, right? It's point and click. What I do think is hard, what I think is extremely hard, excruciatingly hard, is getting people arranged, getting people in place. So at just the right time, when that camera takes the picture, everyone looks perfect. Everyone looks right. That's why I think some family photos, well, turn out looking like what I'm about to show you. Um, getting ready for this sermon series, Family Photo, I messaged my mom. I said, hey, mom, can you send me some some pictures of our family, some family photos? And this is what my mom sent me. This is the first one. This is, let's see, 2010. Um, hey, this is 
This is me and my siblings and my mom. We're home first night of Christmas. All my mom said is, hey, this is great. We're all together coming from three different schools. Let's get a picture together. And my 18-year-old brother and my 21-year-old brother can't keep their hands to themselves. And some clown on the left side decides to wear a Santa hat. And I think mom's face says it all. The next year, mom thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And she just, uh, you know, decided to do something goofy as well. I don't know. You guys have taken family photos before, right? How'd they turn out? I just saw a bunch of heads shake in despair. Like, you know the stress. You know the agony that goes through it to get everyone dressed looking nice, to get everyone to smile with their teeth showing. And it's stressful, and yet we do it. We do it all. All of us do it. Why? Well, so we can have that picture-perfect family photo on our fridge so that we can sell it, send it off to our relatives, put it on Facebook, or put it in a frame so that we are reminded of this is how my family always looks, right? Well, no, because you know it. Even if you did get that perfect family photo, that that picture doesn't last, does it? That's not how your family perhaps always looks and maybe always acts, right? That's what we're going to be talking about during our sermon series during the month of June. And you're probably thinking right now, all right, Matt, I see where you're going with this series. We're going to crack open the Bible and you're going to show us a family. You're going to show us a family that we should be like. Because surely in scripture, in the Bible, there is a picture of God's picture-perfect family. Well, the, the honest truth is you could spend your entire life flipping pages in the Bible and you would never, ever find that family. I mean, think about even the very first family, Adam and Eve. It's through their family, sin came into the world. And then their first son, he was a murderer. Fast forward a a few years to Noah, who God said was righteous. And he saved his family during the flood, right? But then what does dad do? He drinks too much. One of the sons laughed at him and experiences a lifetime of curses. Go to the New Testament where you have John the Baptist family, the first family in the New Testament shown in the Bible. And you have his dad, who's a priest and a man honored in Jewish society. And what does he do? He doubts God. He he laughs at God. And what about Jesus? Surely his family was perfect, right? Well, no, his parents lost the Savior of the world the first time they go to the temple when he was 12 years old. You go throughout scripture and what you see is not one single model family that we can compare ours to, that we can try to live up to. But what God does give us in scripture, it's a bull that. He doesn't give us a picture of a family, but he gives us a principle. A principle is actually multiple of them that show us what our family should be like. You could say that, that God sets his people in their places before he takes picture perfect family photo that's what our god does and that's what we're going to look at today a few of those principles a few of those places where each of us stand in god's picture perfect family now before we look at them i do have to make one note and that's this if you're following in your sermon guide this is the first fill in the blank and that's that god's picture for a picture perfect family the principles the places that he sets they transcend time and place they transcend culture and race. These principles that God is giving, they were set forth in the Garden of Eden. You heard some of them when we read the creation account. There are principles that applied then. 
There are principles that applied during Jesus' day in the 1600s, the 1960s, and even today. They're principles and they're places that have stood the test of time. And believe me, they've been tested. They were tested by Adam and Eve, the very first family. They were tested in Jesus' day. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians in the first century, these were counter-cultural ideas that God's word was given his people. These places and these, these roles that God gave to family members, they're misused and abused in the 16th century, they're misused and abused during our day today. Why? Well, all of us are preconditioned for one thing. And that's to move. That's to move around after God has set us in our place for this picture. And we call that sin. All of us are preconditioned to sin. And that's why the picture is always blurry. It's, it's never perfect. And yet, despite that, the places that God set us in were meant to bless us. And the blessings that he gave families in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, 50 years ago and today, they're blessings he wants to give you and I. And there's something to think about as we think about where God places each of us in his picture for a picture-perfect family. We're in chapter 3 of Colossians, and here the Apostle Paul, he's taking a second to summarize his whole letter, and he said, says a very familiar, very, very famous passage. He says this to introduce what's about to come next, God's places for you and I and the family. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Very nice verse. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. You remember how I said getting people in place for the picture-perfect family photo was hard? Yeah, this is hard. This is hard to hear, right? Where's the place for wives to stand in this photo? It's in the place called submission, if you were here last week, we talked about this a little bit because First Peter talks about it also. The role for wives is to submit. The place God puts them in the family is a place of submission. And when we hear that word, it's hard because we picture, well, a picture like this. Someone who's a servant. Someone who's supposed to be silent. Someone who's supposed to scrub the floors. Someone who's supposed to know their place. And yet, is this the picture that God uses when he talks about submission. Well, last week in our study, we said, no, not at all. In fact, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, where God says, this is submission. Submission is Christ. Christ submitted to the will of his Father. And that's the ideal. That's the picture of submission. It's Jesus. It is also the church in their relationship with Christ, submitting to what Jesus tells them to do, because Jesus has their ultimate good Looking out for him. That's the picture of submit, submission. It's Jesus. Often when, when ladies hear that word, submission, it, it brings up the idea that they are worth less. And yet, did God, did Jesus ever make himself worth less than the Father by what he did throughout his life, what he did throughout his ministry, what he did throughout eternity through saving mankind? Listen, 
Paul says this in Colossians. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Submission isn't something that is forced. It is not something you are made to do. It's something that wives, you do yourself. You submit for your own interests, your own willingness. We are convinced that Christ died for all. And that those who live, you and me, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ who died and who lived for us. And therefore, we are compelled out of love to submit to our God. And what Paul is saying in Colossians, in Ephesians, is exactly the same. Wives, your submission to your husband isn't because you're made to do it. It's something you were held to do by love, the love of your Savior and the love of your husband. How many of you remember the illustration, the picture we used last week for giving an analogy of how this really looks? Anybody remember just a week ago? We said it's a lot like, yeah, Sean. Cups? Yeah, we use the cup ones to talk about the value of wives and the value of husbands. We also talked, the other illustration, Dancing with the Stars. How many of you have ever seen the show? Right? We said that if you've ever watched it, the men on that show often don't know how to dance. But they get paired up with somebody who does. And throughout the season of Dancing with the Stars, what happens? The lady coaches, encourages, uplifts, helps the men do what they're supposed to do, dance. And yet when the lights come on, when the competition starts, who leads the dance? Well, this is the picture that God has for marriage. It's of the woman submitting to her husband, following in step, yielding, if you will, to her husband. And the picture isn't something that's outdated. It's not something that is ugly or overbearing. It's something that's beautiful. It's something that's beautiful because it's something God blesses when you step into that place, that place of submission. But it doesn't make sense, right? Submission doesn't make sense unless you also look at what the husband's role is. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You think about that in the first century. Men were harsh to each other. Men were harsh to their horses. Men were harsh to their slaves and their servants. And they're also harsh to their wives. Because in that time, women had no rights. They were often seen as kind of the same as property And Paul and God comes along and says, oh, no, husbands, you are not to, husbands, make your wives obey. He says you're supposed to love them and not treat them harshly. In Ephesians, Paul writes, you're to love them just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You're to love her with a sacrificial love, just like Christ loved the church. Husbands, your goal is, your goal in life is, is to be Christ to your wife. It is to think about what she needs, what she wants, and be so willing to see that she gets it that you'd even give up your life. Because that, that is what Christ did. Here's another analogy. Any baseball fans here? Now, if you ever watched a pitcher and a catcher, you notice this. They do two very different things out on the field, right? And yet their, their goal is the same. All of them want wins. All of them want to be successful. They want to see strikes pitch. They want to see games won. And yet 
they have two very distinct purposes out on the field. The catcher is the coach on the field. He makes all of the calls for the pitcher, saying if it's a fastball or curveball or a changeup being pitched. It's the pitcher's responsibility to yield to that decision, to submit to the catcher's call and throw that pitch. Now, does that mean that sometimes the pitcher won't shake off the call or sometimes there won't be a little conference on the mound? No, that happens, right? But at the same time, the pitcher submits to what the catcher tells him. And does that, now does that mean the pitcher is worth less? Does that mean that the pitcher is somehow a worse off player than the catcher because their role is different? No, not at all. The coach sees the gifts, the talents that these men or women have, and he assigns them to positions, to places, so that the interests of the team will be best taken care of, so that the team's going to succeed, so that the team's going to win. And that's what our God does. He looks at men, and he looks at women, and he sees how it can be best, how the family can be blessed, how his people can be most successful. And he says, wives, this is your place. It's to submit to your husband. And husbands, this is your place. It's to love sacrificially like Christ. These are the places that God sets for men and women, for husbands and wives. But here's the one for kids. Children, kids, listen up. Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Now I'm talking to children right now. How many of you, don't raise your hand at this one. How many of you live in homes where you, if you ask your parents why, they tell you, do it because I said so. Don't raise your hands. But maybe your parents have said that before, right? Well, here's an even better reason to obey your parents. It's because it pleases the Lord. It's not because your parents said so. It's because what you are doing and obeying is giving glory to God. It's giving praise to God. God said, children, obey your parents in everything. You might not agree with them. You might not think their idea or what they're telling you to do is best. But they said to obey in everything. And here's the cool part. This is one of the only commands that God gives people where he also says a promise. When he gave this command the very first time, he said, children, obey your parents so that it may go well with you and you might enjoy a long life on earth. What's it? He's saying, children, listen, if you obey your parents, you're going to have a good life. I promise you. I'm promising you. If you obey your parents, you're going to enjoy a long life on this earth. How cool is that? That children get to stand in a place of obedience, and as they do, they get to give glory to God. There's one more. There's one more place that God gives here, and it's in Colossians 3, verse 21. Before he's done with the family, Paul says, fathers, notice who he's talking to. It's not mothers, it's not parents, it's fathers. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. God sets fathers in the place, the primary place of taking care of kids in the family. Because if you are the head of the family, that means you're also the head of your children. He says, parents. Not parents. He says, fathers, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. He said this idea of, of a father being manly, of being, of being tough, of being challenging. He said, that is good. But as you challenge your kids, 
as, as you train your kids in the way they should go, he said, don't constantly criticize. He says, don't be so irrational with high expectations that they can only fail. Don't joke with them to the point where they're the only ones who don't get the joke. He says, no, your job is to encourage them. Parents, fathers, fathers in particular, are to stand in the place of being encouragers. Now you're thinking, dads, what about discipline, right? You know that proverb says, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child, right? Well, I like Martin Luther's quote. He said, don't spare the rod and spoil the child, but just keep an apple next to the rod for when the child does something good. You're to encourage. And this is the picture that God gives for families. This is his picture for a picture-perfect family. It's, it's wives who submit. It's husbands and fathers who love sacrificially and who encourage. And it's children who obey. And before all this, what did he say? He said, whatever you do, including this, whether it's in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it in his name. Do it giving glory to him. Do it giving respect to God. Do it looking to Christ for power. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus as if you are his representative. And do it giving thanks to God through the Father, through him. Do it standing in your place, smiling big, because this is God's place for you. So you see the picture. And you see the picture of your family. Hold them up. How do they compare? How does your family compare to God's picture for a perfect family? I think it's clear, right, that as we look at God's picture, one thing for sure is that there's a gap between his ideal family and our real family. There's a gap between what our family really looks like and the idealistic picture, the perfect picture that God puts out. And that gap makes us uncomfortable. It's a gap that, well, it embarrasses us. Because more often than not, whose fault is it that the family is not perfect? But you know. You know it's yours. And as you stand there and you look at this picture, it's like it's like an awkward family photo because you don't want anyone to see it. You don't want to know it's there. You don't want to look at it because more and more it reminds you of your inferiority. It reminds you of your inabilities, your incapabilities of living up to this standard. And so the question is, what are you going to do about that gap? I think often the temptation is to is to pull an Eden. It's to go back to the Garden of Eden. Go back to a time where Adam and Eve entertained the question, did God really say this? You know, wives look at their place in the picture of God's perfect family and say, did God really say submit? Or maybe he said that a couple thousand years ago. Or maybe he said it about that lady, but not me. And so what you do is demonstrate the exact same thing that Eve did. A predisposition to usurp the man's role. To step into your husband's role. 
And husbands, maybe even worse, you demonstrate a predisposition to to abort and get out of what your role is, just like Adam, who was to be the leader, who should have been there, talking, defending his wife against Satan, and you leave. Why? Because it's hard. It's hard to love sacrificially. It offends our pride, just like it offends the rights of women. It offends your pride that you can't be like Christ, and so you abandon it. And children? Children try to step into the role of both parents. So what does God do? What does Christ do? Just give us a a picture of something we can't live up to? Give us places that we can't stand in? It's not what Scripture does. Scripture doesn't just give advice on marriage. It doesn't just give advice on parenting or the family. No, it gives good news. And the good news is that Christ is not once going to compromise on his picture for a perfect family. He's not going to compromise the ideal for the real. He didn't do it once. And as we go through this sermon series, you might feel it. You might feel those expectations high. But God's word doesn't once compromise the picture of ideal, perfect families for what's really going on with families. It's what happened when the Pharisees came to see Jesus. They weren't actually looking to learn. They just wanted to question Jesus. They said, did God really say Did Moses really say? Did God's word really say that a man can just divorce his wife for any reason? Because you see, at that time, in that place, the people in first century Israel, they had, they had a, what was like a no hassle divorce clause for men, not for women. Men could just tell their wives that they were gonna divorce them for any reason, even burning the toast, and they could leave a marriage. But not women. And so they said, did God really say that? They wanted to know if their real picture was what God really wanted. And Christ said, no. No, here's the ideal. Haven't you read? Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this very reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let no one separate. God said, this is, is the ideal. In case you forgot, this picture of marriage, this picture of family is the ideal. And because your hearts were hard, because you wanted to live in what was real, you forgot about it. Yeah, that's why Moses gave you permission, permitted you to give a certificate of divorce in cases of marital unfaithfulness. But it's only because you are hard. It's only because you were so caught up in the picture of what was real and forgot God's ideal. Jesus said he wants something better. He wants something more with one thing. To, he wants to bless you through this picture. If you go home with one thing today, it's this idea. It's our main idea. It's our big idea for today. And that is this, that God loves families. He loves families so much that God invented, God created families. And God loves families. God loves families that love their families by loving his picture of families It's because it's through loving families that God loves you. It's through families that God loves you and wants to bless you. And as we close out this morning, let me give you just three ways that it is through families that God blesses you. 
I said it just briefly before, but God invented families. This modern idea that families are a thing that can morph and move into what we wanted is not so. God invented families many, many years ago, and he did it to bless you. How? Completely. He did it to love you completely, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. You think about that. God did it to bless you completely, spiritually. He gave you a place, the family, to learn to obey God. It's by obeying our parents we learn to obey God. It's by living in a Christian family we learn what God's word has to say. And not just rules and commands, but the gospel, the good news. Because where else but the family do you experience that love, that unconditional love first? Where else do you hear the story of Jesus when you come into the world? It's in the Christian family. God loves you spiritually. He loves you emotionally. It's in the family that God gives gifts to each individual. It's where he gives parents the time to encourage kids to use their gifts. It's in the family that marriage is encouraged to be the place where sexual happiness is fulfilled. God blesses marriages in that way with children, with companionship. God blesses so completely, spiritually, emotionally, but also physically. It seems obvious, but how else does God put you into time and place? It's through the family. And it's through the family, it's through those people that you're given the necessities to live. You're given food, you're given clothing, you're given shelter in the family. I mean, who can argue that a family that follows God's picture for families isn't blessed? Who, who can argue that society isn't blessed when families follow God's picture for families? Here's the next one. God not only blesses us completely, he blesses us eternally. Ever since the fall into sin, God made a promise. He made a promise that through the offspring of woman, that he would send a savior to reverse the sin. And ever since then, families took on greater and greater significance. Because it was through the family line that that promise was kept in the family to save families. It was through his chosen people, God's family, that the line of the Savior was preserved. And when that was about to be put on hold, when, when Joseph thought my wife was sleeping with someone else, I'm going to divorce her silently, God said, no, we're keeping it in the family. And he sent an angel to make sure that the Savior was born into a legal, loving family. It was through the family that the Savior was raised and grew in wisdom and stature. And it was through families that God has loved you eternally. And this is the greatest one of all. That it's through families that God loves you unconditionally. Because there on the cross as a mother stood and watched her son die. And the father turned his back on the son. That we see unconditional love. We see the Savior, the Son of God and the Son of Man, die for all of your sins. Die for your sins of failing to love like Christ's husbands. Die for your sins of failing to honor and respect your husband's wives. Die for all your disobedience, kids. Die for all the times you discouraged 
your children, fathers. He died for all of those sins, all the times we failed to uphold that picture perfect family that God has in his word. He hid that on the cross in Christ. Just let me make that point clear. God didn't just Photoshop things and move things around. He didn't just swipe and put a filter over it so it looked a little better. No, what God did is he took the awkward family photos that we have, that we have because of sin before. He said, sin Christ, they're gone. This is what he said. We read it in, in Colossians before. He said, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. Think about that. Think about your life. All of the awkward moments of disappointing leadership, dads. Of of failing to submit, wives. Of disobedience kids. It's hidden in Christ. No one sees it. Your God doesn't even see it because it's gone. When he looks at you, that's what he sees. He sees his picture of a perfect family because he sees Christ. He sees the family that you are in. That's what our God sees. He sees men and women, imperfect, of course, standing in a place called grace smiling because they know what it means to be forgiven by God, to know how the gospel transforms these families into something beautiful, into the ideal that God had for families. I have an awesome grandma. She uh, <laughs> she loves to hang pictures up of all the family members. Um, and I can still picture every year there'd be a new one, right? Because she would make all the aunts, she'd make my mom give her an updated version every year of a family photo. And it'd always be on her wall for the entire year. And then on January 1, she'd change them out, put the new ones in. Now I'm not, I haven't been a really great grandson because now that I have my own family, my grandmother expects that I'm going to give her those updates every year. And I I've kind of failed the last like two years maybe to give her ones. And there's been an addition to my family, so she wants even more updates of pictures. Well, anyways, this last January, I went to her house, and I went in it, and all of a sudden she had all of these pictures of me and my family up on the wall that I'd never given her before. I said, Grandma, how'd you get those pictures? And I was particularly interested because they weren't good pictures. They, like, weren't the pictures that my wife and I would have chosen to give her. And... They were blurry. They were. They didn't look good. But Grandma's like, well, Matt, you wouldn't give me any, so I figured out how to take them off Facebook and take them to Walgreens and have them printed out. And so there they were. And we walked around her house, and I had seen these pictures before, right? They're mine. But she wanted to show them to me. And we walked around her house, and, and as we did, she would just look at one and describe it to me. And we'd look at it, but I was really watching her, and I was just watching the way she delighted she was looking at them. And you think about that. You think if that's Grandma Rosie, you think about how your God Almighty, your Father in Heaven, looks at your pictures. You might not think that the family you're in is picture perfect, but you have a God who is in Heaven looking at the photographs of your family, showing you off to the angels, saying, look, Look at them. They're too busy to send me some photographs right now, but they are someday coming home to visit, and I cannot wait 
because this family is perfect. And they're going to come here to live someday soon. Amen.